I want to tell you something about me. Um, it's not very important. Don't worry. I am dyslexic, which is very unfortunate. I also have a lisp, which is also very unfortunate because both those things are terribly situated. People know that, you know, telling somebody who has a lisp but that they have a lisp is really hard. So I've done a lot of work to make sure I don't have a lisp. And I've tried really hard to overcome dyslexia, but I can't spell it. <laughs> that is mean. <laughs> it's just really mean. Um, the, the problem that I had with all of this is that God told me that I had to go do a master's degree. When you're dyslexic and you have to study at a graduate level, it sucks a lot. But not only am I dyslexic in English, I found out, I'm also dyslexic in Greek, which sucks worse. This is the Greek alphabet. Um, it doesn't look like the English alphabet very much, and the things that do look like the English alphabet are not. They're just not, so it's rude. So for example, um, um, rho is right here, down there. The one that looks like a P, that's an R. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that sounds like rr, rr, and you're like, nope. <laughs> nope, nope, that's not it. Um, this one here that looks like a W, right there, this is omega. Um, omega is O but it looks like wuh. And so not only am I dyslexic, but I'm struggling through trying to change the letters that are already changing on me, changing them back to the new phonetic that it is. Anyways, Greek is crazy. There's a cool thing up here though, Greek English, the top corner letter is theta. Theta goes like TH, it's the first letter in God, which is theos. Um, and so that's, that's theta. Theta is interesting because in English, the anglicized English has the equivalent of a theta, and it is called um, thorn. Thorn is a letter that looks like a Y. Thorn looks like a Y, and we used to use it. Um, we used to use it actually in uh, in in the New World here when we first when we first came, and in the Wild West you would see ye old shop, except for it's not ye because that Y is actually thorn, which was a, an alliteration of theta. So it was the old shop. So language has changed, and we and we've discovered all of this that that is kind of cool that uh, that you know Greek still has influenced our language so much. Um, we have, we have all of this. So, you know, the first job in Greek is to remember this language, um, to remember all of the letters. So what we have today is the name of our message that comes from the book of Acts. We're starting a new, a new um, gospel series, and the name of our message is Kerygma. Kerygma, and that's what it looks like in Greek in the top corner. Kerygma. Um, it's a cool sounding word, so I decided it would be really good. But if you were to pronounce that in English, it's kerugia, kerugia, <laughs> kerugia. But it's kerygma, and uh, it's a really interesting word. It means um, it is a unique message that's found seven times in the book of Acts. The word itself is not found in Acts. 
But it's found seven times in Acts, and, uh, and there are seven examples of what kerygma is. And it is gospel presentation. So here's the question that the kerygma is telling us to ask. How do I present Jesus to my culture? That is kerygma. How do I share my faith? Um, and, and so that's a really, it's a big challenging question. There are a bunch of circumstances that have happened inside of our culture that cause us pause when we talk about sharing our faith. For example, um, Barna is a Christian research organization, and they researched inside churches in Canada and in the States, and they wanted to do some research in finding out their actual question, which is shocking that it came to this, was, is it ethical to share your faith with somebody who is not a Christian? Is it even ethical? 47% of Christians polled said, no, it's not ethical. It's not ethical to share your faith, according to 47% of Christians polled. So, wow, that's a distant, that's a far removal from Jesus' call to say, go into all the nations, teach people, you know, how to live and, or teach people about me, actually, is really what he says, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very far cry. And, and so what, it, what it's actually showing us is that society has changed. How many people have witnessed society change in your lifetime? Stuff is changing. Absolutely. So I want to introduce an idea that's not in my notes right now, but I realize that it's an important part of, of what's happening. Um, there, was, there was an author named, last name Brugger, Brugger and, uh, and he said that we have plausibility structures. It's why there are no cowboys in sci-fis, right? You don't get co cowboy and sci-fi coming together because there's a plausibility clash, except for in those movies, John. We don't watch those movies because it's a plausibility clash, and we go, nope, 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 no. <laughs> We, we know that, that when um, Rawlings created uh, Harry Potter, she created a, a different imaginative worldview in which a game called Quidditch can work. And so we've created a plausibility structure in which we can understand that we don't just check out and say, nope, that didn't happen. Nope, nope, no. We actually go, we get excited and we're like, oh, what is that? And so all of those things happen because it creates a new plausibility structure. The idea that the that the you know a spacecraft can can open up a wormhole and just whoop whoop right across, and then somehow Thor with a hammer can jump through the same wormhole with no spacecraft and not get completely ripped apart, and that's weird. But we have plausibility structures to cover that stuff, and we go, oh well, because of this, 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 that's how it can happen. Okay, that's really important because in our context, we have reduced the plausibility of a God theory. In our culture, we have reduced that to fiction and private life. We live in an increasingly, and everybody knows this, we live in an increasingly secular, con a secular construct where God 
is an idea meant to help the individual through reality. That is our culture's concept. At this time, in this time, in this space, in Canada, that's a cultural concept, that God is, a, is an idea that helps us through our reality. And that's why we come to Barna's question that says, is it even ethical to share your faith? Because the question is, if God is just an idea, then who are you to impose your idea on somebody else? And that's a hard thing to, to grapple with. It's a hard thing in our reality to grapple with. And so we look back at scripture and we say, how do we deal with and what do we communicate about our faith? If we are to be a people of the word, a people of God, then how do we deal with the tension that exists in our world where our world doesn't view God the exact same way that we do? Because we know that God is living and eternal and God is the author of life and he works in mysterious ways and he is above us and he has been with us in the person of Jesus and he is with us today in the Holy Spirit. He's more than an idea, is my point. So, big question, eh? Kerygma. Kerygma. That's where we are. So today, if you have uh, any, any text messages, questions, comments, bring it through our text messages today. And uh, you could do it on the tablet or you could use your phone at promisechurch.community. And we would love to hear from you today. So um, the question is, how do we share our faith? So today, as we talk about this, this gospel, what do we do with our faith? It is more than just a simple structure. We're going to read... Acts chapter 3. Um, Acts chapter 3, verse 12. And we're going to read through to the end of this section here. Give you a little bit of context. Context. Um, Peter and John have just walked up to the temple like normal. And there was, a, there was a beggar there. And that beggar was asking for money. And Peter and John said, silver and gold, I don't have any. But what I have, I give to you stand up and walk. And so the guy gets up and he's just like, whoa, this is unbelievable. I'm walking. I'm walking. I'm healed. And, and, he, and he clings on. And he clings on to Peter. And he's holding Peter by the arm. And obviously there's a stir. Something has happened. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And he said, men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? As though, or, or stare at us, as though by our own power or our own religiosity, piety, we have made this man walk. No, the very real God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, who you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, who God raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. It's by Jesus' name, by faith in Jesus' name, 
that he has made this man strong, who you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. It's interesting how suffering is something that's coming up a lot today. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that a time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke in the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So, here we have one of the seven examples of kerygma. In your, on the tablet, in today's messages, you will find the other, the other six. They're all listed there. If you're interested, you'll be able to see that throughout the week. You can click on any one of them and read them. These are examples of how they're communicating, how the first century church is communicating the power of what Jesus did. There are six main points that I want to highlight for you today. Um, they're common in all of them, although not all of them have all six. But they're, they're common. They're just these common themes that keep reoccurring that become instructive for us in understanding how we can communicate the truth of God's work. The first one is God is at work. This is in verse 12. God is at work. So we see right away... We see, why do you think that you did this? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob glorified his servant. He was the one who was at work. This is the starting point. Guys, when we share, when we share about our faith, our starting point is not us and not the person we're talking to. Our starting, our starting vantage point is God is at work. God is the one who's working. That's the consistent message of the Bible. God is at work. I want to contrast that with the normal way that we start off sharing our faith, the way that we're taught to. Um, we go back to Navigators. We go back to Romans Road. We go back to Four Spiritual Laws. All of those start with an accusation. You aren't good enough. They say, they actually say, we had this argument in seminary, they actually say to have good news, you have to start with bad news. So you have to convince people of how bad they are before they'll ever understand how good God has called them to be. That's actually an argument. And so the Bible model says we start not with the condition of the other person, but we start with the condition of God's action. God is at work. Verse 12, don't look at me as though I did something. Know that God is working here. God is, has a plan. And so God glorified his servant, Jesus. The next thing that we need to recognize that happens in all of them, and this was mind-blowing to me, it's specific. People, not God, killed Jesus. Okay, this is huge because in a lot of church theology right now, the accusation is you killed Jesus, or sorry, God killed Jesus because he was angry. God killed Jesus because he was angry at sin in the world, and so he killed Jesus so that you could be forgiven. Okay, the math doesn't work. The Bible clearly says 
you killed Jesus when you denied him. The people that existed in Jesus' time and space, because God made himself finite, the people killed Jesus. And the book of Acts is adamant about it. That people killed Jesus. I do find it interesting that as a culture, we've progressed beyond Nietzsche, who said that God is dead, and we've and we have come to say that God is is irrelevant and God is an idea that we hold. Our culture is actively trying to kill off the idea of God. Now, is it a big thing? Someone's controlling it? No, it's actually humanity. It's human nature. That is that is the story that we want to tell ourselves because. We want to rule ourselves. And the idea that's, that, that God is actually above us, that's challenging. That's challenging to my ego. It's challenging to, it's challenging to my autonomy. Um, it's challenging to the way that I want to live my life right now. So, so we push on this. We actually continue in the death of the narrative of God in the same way that the people of that day actually physically denied Jesus and, ha- and killed him. So we participate in the killing off of God and the killing off of Jesus, and that's interesting. So it's just fact at this point, you killed Jesus. Okay. And, and he, gets, he gets pretty specific. He's like, you denied him in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release him. Uh, but you denied the holy and the righteous one. Okay, those are pretty strong polemical words. You're creating a huge, like, what did you just say? Did you just accuse me of what I think you just accused me of? And so it's a pretty strong thing, but, but it is something that plays out in history and it plays out in, in Jesus' life that people killed him. We do need to understand that it's people, not God, that killed Jesus. It's biblical. If you want to be biblical about your Christianity, it was, it was people. The third point, though, always comes right on the heels, that God intervenes. That God says, "Mm -mm -mm." okay, you killed Jesus, but God raises him from the dead. That God vindicates his son, Jesus Christ, and raises him from the dead. We've talked a lot about the importance of the resurrection over the past few weeks, that God has done something that is amazing. And in our culture today, God uses us who speak truth about God in our culture today that says, no, God is not just an idea. God has done something in my life. My testimony and my experiences with God as he has walked me through some of the darkest times in my life, as he has been with me, as we have experienced his presence in worship, as we have seen God answer prayers, God is the one who is with me. And our testimony is the same as the testimony that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's God has worked in my life. Therefore, he's not just an idea and he's not something that you could just push off and pretend doesn't exist. So we get this, this tension that's still happening today where, where people killed God and God raised them from the dead and God does it through his church in, in the narratives of today where he says, no, God's not dead. Look at what he did in my life. Look at how God took me from my situation, my mire, my clay, my struggle, my problem, and God established me and built me and did with stuff in me that is beyond me. God is not dead. And we are witnesses of that. We are witnesses of that. 
So the fourth one that comes out of, out of this one is that healing foreshadows the fulfillment of God's promises. Healings that happen, emotional, physical, um, financial, relational, healings that happen, they don't happen every single time. That's a struggle that the theologians have had to deal with. What do we mean? The word foreshadowing actually helps us because, because it's something where it's like we're pointing towards what will be when all people are healed, when all situations are healed, when evil is removed. It's a foreshadow. So what's happening here with the, with, at the Gate Beautiful is Peter and John, they've walked together and they've said, they've said, here is a man and he is healed. Not every person that was healed that was begging in the culture not every person that was begging in the culture was healed, but this one was. Why? So that we can see that God is still active. God is still working. And so the testimony that says God fulfills his promises in Jesus Christ. The fifth one is you need to trust Jesus and stop relying on yourself. Okay. Wow. You need to trust Jesus and stop relying on yourself. Because of these truths, because of the truth of God, because God is active and he is alive and he is above us and he loves us, we need to Trust Jesus. The call to action in the Christian kerygma is trust Jesus and stop relying on yourself. Here he puts it this way. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer and fulfill, repent, change the way that you think and act, therefore, and turn back to God. The result of this repentance is God is, God is open God is open to you. He is open to you coming and following him. Regardless of what things you did, regardless of what guilt you feel that you carry, God is open to you and forgiveness is offered. Regardless. It's across the board. God is open to you. And so, that's challenging. Because what we want to do in our own life is we want to position ourselves so that we can move the ahead the best. We want to do the best that we can. And God's like, no, just trust me. Don't rely on yourself to solve problems that are bigger than you that you can't solve. Jesus Christ is the solution. And the last one is God's promises will come to pass. In this one, we see that, that Jesus is returning we see it just vaguely, but we do see that Jesus is returning um, so that he may send the, uh, Jesus who was appointed for you, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, uh, whom heaven must receive for a time. Jesus is returning. God's promises will come to pass. Guys, I don't know if anybody is like me, but... I honestly, I'm getting weary of hearing bad news on the radio, on the interweb, net, whatever. I am weary of hearing bad news. 
and it's very tiring. And sometimes when I hear bad news again, I experience two emotions. One is complete anger that bad things happen to good people. Oh, the evil in this world has got to go. It's got to go. The second thing is a realization that God is gracious and it's not people that are our enemies. It is not people that are our enemies, but that the enemy, Satan, has been walking around deceiving, destroying, and bringing death. And the promise of God will come to pass. The good news of God is that he will do it. That he is the one, that the proclamation is God is at work and God will do it. God is at work and whatever your struggle is, God will bring it through to completion. God is at work and he's the one who carries the burden. Guys, I don't carry the burden of fixing the world. You don't carry the burden of fixing the world. That burden lay on Jesus Christ on the cross and he rose again and he defeated it and he waits until he brings it all to completion. This is the good news of Jesus, and it repeats again and again and again. So in Acts, the disciples stood up in front of rulers and shouted that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. And sometimes they got dead. And sometimes two or 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. See, vision does two things. One, it repels. A strong vision repels people and it attracts people. A strong vision repels people because they're like, whoa, I I can't handle that. That's too much. I can't do it. And they push away. And a strong vision also attracts people. When I started talking about planting Promise Church here in Bradford, I had a vision, a strong vision. It's 36 pages. And uh, that vision is... uh, that vision is happening. And there were people who talked to me along the way that told me all kinds of negative things, that it couldn't happen, that it wasn't going to happen, that they weren't going to help fund it, that they weren't going to do anything. And so this is, this is the reality. And, and my, my boss, he actually looked at me and he said, he said, Rob, you have a strong vision here. It will push people away and it will also attract people. It will also draw people. So you guys here are some of the people that it is drawn but in the same way, the kerygma, it is a strong vision. So what we have here, these six points, this is a strong vision. It is not your responsibility whether it attracts somebody or whether it pushes them away. It is your responsibility to love that person. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the book of Acts, and then we're going to go into another sermon series about how to how to how to continue this conversation because we move on from this in the in the book of Acts but we're going to come back to this in a few weeks in another sermon series so today um, as we've looked at this wonderful Greek word kerygma um, then we will uh, we'll let that rest today and uh, by the end of this sermon series we'll have gone through all of Luke's writing in the existence of promised church we'll have done all of Luke uh, which we just finished last or two weeks ago and then we're going to go into Acts so let me pray God, I thank you for I thank you for Luke. I thank you for his wonderful way of writing. I thank you that he was definitely inspired by you and by actions that you did. And Jesus, I pray that that those actions that you did two thousand years ago would be reflected in us in our in our culture. 
God, I pray that we would have the boldness of the Holy Spirit to speak of the fact that you are at work, that we would not shy away, but that we would know that you are faithful, that you are working, that you love us, and that that message would be, would be clear. God, I thank you so much that, uh, that you have done all of this. And I pray that you would continue to, to bless us um, as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just before, um, there was one text message, wasn't there? I just totally dropped it. Sometimes that's the best part of faith. Though our walk, through our walk, we become aware of the fact that this life is temporary and that we have a hope because one day we will be in heaven with no more pain and no more suffering. And I'll take that as a word from the Lord because that is true and, uh, and that is where our hope is. And so God bless you and uh, please stand as we, as we finish in worship today.